0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Video Games Now podcast. It's Rodney and I'm joined by two very special guests today. We have Alex and Joe. Hello, boys.
2: Hey, Alex here. Hello.
1: How you doing,
0: Rodney? I'm good, thank you. And uh, so these guys are uh, super awesome AAA uh, game designers. And uh, how do you guys feel being here?
2: I'm excited. This is about the first podcast I've done as a designer,
1: as a professional. So this is a lot of fun to really be on the other side of the questions. Yeah. And I think Alex and I, we get to talk a lot about game design. It's kind of nice to just open that up to other people and sort of like expose sort of how we think. I think that's kind of a fun way to just explore our work.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, alright, so, yeah, we're gonna talk about game design, and I can't remember if both of you, uh, worked at Sega or not, I, uh, do you want to correct me on that?
2: No, I'm actually, yeah, I, I worked at Sega during the, uh, Dreamcast days, uh, 2000 or so, 2001.
1: Joe did not. Yeah, I worked at Crystal Dynamics in 2001.
0: Awesome. Uh, okay, cool, so yeah, I'll ask, uh, ask you a couple questions about the uh, the good old 90s and early 2000s, uh, the, the best time. And uh, yeah, all that and game design coming up right now. Uh, right now. Right now. Alright guys, let's get uh, right into the show here. Uh, I just want to start off by saying t- this week is your last week to get into our contest for winning a custom esports jersey with your name and g- or your gamer tag and number on it. So to enter, just uh, go to our Facebook page where you have a comment going and you just got to comment on what you think our sports team name esports team name should be whatever the hell and uh, so far uh, we have a lot of uh, entries from Josh Uh, I think Josh really wants an esports jersey so you guys will have to beat him you can do as many entries as you guys want and uh, for full details visit our website videogamesnow.ca and uh, the gaming award of the week is brought to you by Thunderstorm Games uh, where they got a lot of cool flash games like you're in the 2000s again and uh, so you guys head over to thunderstormgames.com and check them out All right, and uh, the Gaming Word of the Week this week is barrel stuffing. So, uh, Alex and Joe, what do you guys think barrel stuffing means?
1: Uh, Joe? Uh, Okay, so my shallow answer is it has to do with Donkey Kong. It's a very niche... Uh, I'm just gonna leave it right there. Actually, like, I'm pretty sure Alex has a better idea. Yeah,
2: like, like whenever, uh, like, like, when you are Donkey Kong and you like jump into the barrels and you have to kind of like, uh, like shoot yourself out of like a cannon.
1: I haven't even put that much Barrel right stuffing. Yeah, stuffing in the barrel. I, I thought it went older to uh, Miyamoto days, but I think oh. you've got a better idea. Okay, oh, yeah, maybe so.
2: No, I, I, if I were to think like what barrel stuffing is, uh, as a designer, if I were to use that term, I would probably say like, Hey, you're, you're doing too much barrel stuffing. And uh, and by that, I would say that, uh, back in the early days of when 3D games were coming to their, coming out that, uh, the designers needed to put things that you could shoot, that you could destroy, you could punch or whatever like that, destructibles. And generally the easiest things to create were crates and barrels. Uh, and you could put anything you want in there. You could stuff whatever you want into a barrel. And then when the player punched it or shot it, things would come out of it. But also there was the, the backlash of just like too much stuff, mm-hmm. uh, like, how long am I going to play this game until I see a crate or a barrel that I can destroy? Uh, and that became kind of like the epitome of a badly designed game the quicker you would be able to see it from the get-go. So my guess is that it was the minimum amount of trash that the player would say, like, great, I can collect these little things that pop out of this barrel when I shoot it. And that's barrel stuff. One coin.
0: <laughs> One singular coin. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That. That's uh, like uh, one
2: green rupee.
0: <laughs> totally. Um, if I didn't have the uh, the actual description of barrel stuffing in front of me, I probably would have believed you. It's like probably the best bullshit answer I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyways, uh, okay. Uh,
1: Alex is the king of bullshit answers, by the way. All right, it's all right. will yeah. right. be full of bullshit answers uh, for your audience to
0: know. Yeah, so Joe, it's your job to let me know if he's bullshitting me, because I might just believe him all night. So.
1: <laughs> just assume it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so barrel stuffing is uh, when playing an FPS game coming in close, usually when quick scoping and shooting your opponent at an easier distance would be called barrel stuffing.
2: Oh yeah! That's not, you have the barrel like right stuffed in their mouth, and you're shooting the gun yeah. barrel. Yeah, <laughs> gun barrel. Got it. Man, oh my god.
0: Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, and actually, just that, just that design thing. Uh, when you're talking about DK s- stuffing in a barrel, all I could think of was monkeys in a barrel. So uh-huh. yeah.
1: yeah,
0: yeah, totally. And uh, and and now that you mention it, like yeah, every freaking game had a box of some variety, a box or or a yeah barrel or f- something. So, oh, yeah, there.
1: easiest thing, easiest thing to make. You can put them everywhere. Yeah, right, and they feel like they're still in place. They're like, it's if it, it was if it was a birthday cake or a birthday present, you could, couldn't put that in a warehouse.
0: Yeah, totally. <laughs> no, unless it's
1: it totally right? <laughs> Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah
1: unless it was a cake factory. Then yeah, exactly. exactly. You have to be making a cake cake in a birthday party. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. All right, uh, visit our website at videogamesnow.ca to find all of our content including our YouTube videos, social media links, and the latest gaming news. After the show, please leave a review on whatever you're listening to the show on to help spread the word about barrel stuffing. And uh, finally, have you been considering becoming a Video Games Now Patreon? As a Patreon, you get access to the podcast episodes one day earlier than everyone else and you get discount on VGN Swag, exclusive stories, and you can listen to the podcast live on Discord while we record it. And so far, the only patreon we have is mr bridges who's reaping the benefits so hard so hard you be jealous of matt
2: i love that i love that yeah that, that person is aces yeah, yeah. great name
0: yeah <laughs> all right uh, so yeah let's get right into uh what you what you guys do right now like uh and i understand that you have your own designing company now
1: yeah um two years now we've been doing this so um Design consulting essentially, so like meeting with teams. They've got they need help with gameplay. They need help with their game design concept, and we help them as much as we possibly can. And it has a name too. Oh yeah, we're called Recurver. I'm, I'm terrible about like branding and marketing. So Recurver comes from recurve and game design to me is like it's an analogy for game design. It's like archery. You aim, you shoot, you adjust, and you, read, and you do it again. And like professionally, we call it iteration but I prefer to, like, put a visual to it. Plus, yeah. archery is awesome. We have this archery trail here in California like, I can go down to, go hike, you hike in the woods, you shoot 14 different targets over canyons, over creeks, and then an uh, hour and a half, you're done. Nice. Feels great. You feel like a real mountain, man. Yeah, yeah, you go through there, you're, like, really kind of, like, feeling the... Like, like you're chasing something yeah it, there's a guy that actually he, he makes his own arrows and he runs the course and he times himself and he's like practicing for the zombie apocalypse yeah, yeah for,
2: for Red Dawn. <laughs> yeah.
0: I, I feel like there's most a- of america's preparing for like a zombie apocalypse like it's just pretty <laughs> uptight down there
1: i'm so <laughs> unprepared no
2: you know and we often uh wonder like what video game designers are like the least equipped for when the apocalypse happens uh like what what skills do i have that are going to serve me post-apocalyptic yeah. anywhere yeah. like yeah you know, i'm gonna be like oh we need to gamify uh, our food rations here you know you've eaten so much of that I'm, you're gonna have to time out for a bit before you have another one yeah I'm, I'm dead yeah yeah they're gonna kill so me you. they're gonna eat me yeah, yeah it's all you guys want
0: my uh, my boss and I have had like extensive conversations about our plans for if any sort of apocalypse <laughs> happens. Like the, your first stop is like a hardware store. Like you get a knife, you get like a way to ma- get your own food, and like everyone's going to be running to like you know the closest grocery store and just like stocking up on uh, non perishables. But it's like yeah, then you run right. out and you're fucked. <laughs> right?
1: Yeah.
2: Well, is there probably like yet another? Un- the third unknown, like you yeah, had the grocery store and the hardware store, those seem like pretty much where I would Offer They're high them. tier, yeah. yeah, yeah, very high tier. But is there like a secret one that's like, oh man, if you go to uh, you know your local YMCA, that's where all the you're going to get the equipment, you know, to deck yourself out in some way, and then all your teammates and everything like that. What are like, you I wonder if there's like some secret place.
0: What what do you, what do your <laughs> YMCA's <laughs> have down there? Up here, we just have gym equipment. Like, <laughs> grab my nearest <New laughs> <laughs> <laughs> basketball.
2: Well, I was thinking they, they have pools, so they're going to
0: have chlorine. Okay. And
2: then, I don't know if chlorine stops. Cool on Zombies. <laughs> Call it. <laughs> calling
0: bullshit. I, I think <laughs> I would go to, uh, we have a store up here called Atmosphere, which is just basically like a wilderness store. So, like, people who go hiking and, and, and like, backpacking yes. and all that. Uh, yeah, I would go there and just get all the essential, everything from there. Like a water purifier, etc. Uh, yeah,
1: like military surplus. Yeah, there you
2: go. Yeah. You go. Cool. Oh man, I'd be so dead. I'd be at the that's, that's my point. Yeah, I'd be <laughs> like, oh,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: yeah Took that, that long to figure that one out. There's a pool table here, at least. So anyway, I shoot archery and name the
0: company after archery. Nice, <laughs> awesome. So uh, uh, I know you guys are under NDAs. I know all about those working in film. So uh, I know you can't say too much about stuff you're working on currently. But uh, what uh, what's some something that's what's your most recent release? I guess what's something that's completely out now, and you can kind of talk about it a bit.
2: Let's see. So before uh, I actually came to join Joe at Recurver, uh back in 2018, I was with EA, uh, the Maxis uh, team, and we were working on Sims 4. And the last thing I worked on before I left, I wrote some designs up and uh, and those kind of sat on the shelves, the virtual shelves there, uh, and some of them still live on in future packs. But uh, the last one I worked on there was the Seasons pack uh, for Sims 4. And that was the one that I said, like, all right, this is fantastic. I made myself an ice skating rink that's also, in the summertime, a roller skating rink. Uh, it's the best thing ever. I've uh, accomplished everything I've ever wanted to with design. I am leaving EA forever in the Sims. This is my legacy. Come to join Joe. Uh, I really should have picked something far more special, superior. Like, I don't know. I mean, I feel like I kind of left the Sims without my magnum opus hmm yeah, like, like the like, ice skating rink go
1: back let's they'll, they'll consult they'll be like Alex, oh, come back for a magnum opus
2: no 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 they're better off without me yeah I've, I've done everything I can for them yeah, I, I left with the ice skating rink as, as my magnum opus I'm, I'm okay with that I guess
0: did you do like a so, mic, mic drop um, but, with like a like a USB stick like there's your ice crank I'm out yeah, pretty,
2: yeah, yeah, pretty much, um like, uh, within the video game development, uh, everything is up on servers, so you're constantly pushing and pulling things from the servers. Uh, so my last entry was, I think I did write some sort of snarky message, mm-hmm. uh, for uh, my Perforce entry that probably said like, yeah, good luck trying to figure out what the hell I've done here.
0: <laughs> <laughs> You'll call me back.
2: <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't try to do that. Like, like set them up with some boot traps, uh-huh. and yeah. so they would have to call me back for like a very expensive contract or something like that. Uh, I'm not selling myself very good as a contractor to work with.
0: <laughs>
2: I promise anybody that hires me, I'm really not going to screw you over. Dark <laughs> <me start> check-ins. <laughs> no, but um. Yeah, but uh, then after that, like uh, once I joined up with Joe, he had just, uh, you, you just left 2K at that point, right? Yeah, yeah, so you left 2K. And uh, your last project there, uh, I won't I won't give it that away.
1: What was it, Joe? Oh, um, what was my last project there? I guess it was Mafia 3, um, but also, like, uh, Borderlands, the pre sequel, is, I think, a much more fun title to talk about. Like got to work with Australians. That's set, set the game on the moon, and all the all the people on Pandora's moon spoke with an Australian accent. It was just—it was fun. It was a lot of yeah. fun. Yeah. yeah, it was probably one of the, the funnier ones
2: out there. Yeah. Uh, and and when I first played it, like I was I was very disappointed. I was like, oh man, this extra gravity bump that you get on the moon, uh-huh. how are they going to balance all that sort of stuff. But um, with kind of the open world versus the dungeons, yeah, uh, it actually worked out pretty well. And so, like when you're inside. It's a little, I uh, always thought, it's
1: restricted.
2: restricted. Well, I never knew, like, when it was on, when it was off. Yeah. Sort of, and there was the UI out there, but, you know, with
1: Borderlands, the UI is always... You know, no, but you want your double jumps suddenly and you don't yeah. get it. And yeah. Yeah, you're repressing it. But other than that, I mean, like, it, uh, it was a solid game. Yeah. I really like it.
0: Awesome. Uh, so what, uh, how did you guys get into designing? Uh, did you get your foot in the door with QA and then work your way up from there? Or?
1: That's right. That's basically it, yes. Um, I was in the arcades playing Tekken alongside some pretty class act game developers. Um, they show up on Wednesday nights at the arcade and they just said, yeah, you'd be pretty good at QA. because I was making, I was doing like backwards fighting and glitching in Tekken and not necessarily just beating everybody up all the time. So got my job in QA, learned I had a really good spot. Dynamic, so. Um, I made kind of a Faustian deal with the lead producer. I asked him to be a designer for him and he told me I had to be a producer for him for first. And so I did that and that went like two and a half, three years, maybe four years. So it was QA for a while, then production and then design. Yeah, i always wondered when you were actually gonna start doing design. like, <laughs>
2: you just kept on going on and on and on. And I was like, Joe's never actually gonna be a designer, man. He's, that he's like yeah. he's like just on the yeah. precipice of making this happen, but gets pulled back in the production
1: side every yeah. single time. Because yeah. you're too good at it. And that's that was that was my problem both with QA and production. It was that I was too good at it and nobody wanted to let me leave because they didn't know how to replace me. And I realized I had to like come up with automated ways and processes to make sure that if I got hit by a bus... The thing could co- still go on, and therefore I could move on to the thing that I'm really Or you have to find the, the warm body to take your place. Yeah, so you can, like, <laughs> so you can escape. Yeah. <laughs> Daniel Kim for QA. Yeah, yeah. Arnab Basu for production. Yeah, that's, that's cool. right. Yeah, you're the new replacement of me. Yeah, <laughs> and that look out. Both well, yeah. great. But Alex was pretty similar and also
2: just really tenacious. You, you know what? It even starts back uh, further in history than that, uh, now that I think about it. Like, my first thing was that. uh, I was uh, back before Craigslist, uh, we would answer, um, I feel like this is a dirty story now Craigslist wow. <laughs> But, but, the, 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 <laughs> but uh, back in the day uh, You would like Look at your classified newspaper Ads and they would be like Trading video games and you know trading whatever you're on. But I, I was always looking at the video Game section and somebody had A Street Fighter 2 arcade Machine that they were wanting to get rid of mm-hmm. And I was like I jumped at it I was like oh yeah Street Fighter 2 arcade game Then I'm there I had no idea what the hell I was doing um, but I Ended up trading them some stuff for it, uh, and got it, and then borrowed my mom to pick up Trump to bring it home. You know, she was like, What have you done? This is the stupidest <laughs> thing ever. It's my best thing ever. Uh, yeah, it got me into like, this, I, I had achieved my goal uh, to own an arcade machine, which I thought was the coolest thing at the time. And, how, how and uh, I was at that time. I was 16, 17 something like that. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. And I would be your best friend with. It. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, you, you would you would think it would have got me on the ladies. Uh, they they <laughs> <laughs> apparently women didn't play video games back in the day. Uh, yeah, they still. Don't. Then at the yeah right, we're still having trouble. Fifty one percent. Yeah. The The, the, the Sims and yeah, is one of those things that really opened my eyes to there. There are lots of uh, female gamers and uh, and non. Uh, the usual suspect of gamers did. But uh at that point I then needed to get rid of this arcade machine cuz my parents were not happy with
1: it. Wait, wait, this is gonna connect for Unit to to This design. is going to
2: yeah, this is gonna go. This is you're ready for this? Yeah yeah. All right, yeah, ready, yeah. yeah. We're, we're taking the next uh degree here. Let's go. So then I put it up on eBay to get rid of it and found a local person on eBay to take it. And then they traded me a bunch of arcade boards for it mm-hmm.
1: okay, that were Gemma.
2: smaller and yeah, smaller, easy to go. They had JAMA, uh, very compatible, easy to sell. So then I put those up on eBay uh, to then sell. And I found this guy out in California mm-hmm. uh, that wanted them. And he had me ship them to his, uh, his work, mm-hmm. which was Sega of America. Mm-hmm. And so... And once I saw that on the package, like where I'm shipping this, right. I, you know, I, I got all giddy and I was all heated and everything. And I was, I was like, oh my gosh, I was like, I got to talk to this guy. How am I going to bring all this up? Especially through like eBay, <laughs> you have to ask certain questions and you can't like really go off script or they're going to flag you. So then I was like, I, 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 I said, like, hey, you need to call me about something. And then I had him call me. And I was like, I was like, hey, this sounds crazy. Uh, but. You want to chat a little bit about at SEGA, working at SEGA, because I would really like to work at SEGA one of these days. Wow! And this guy was one of the, Keith was his name, and he was one of the nicest fellas uh, that I had ever met up to that point. And he was a producer at uh, at SEGA at the time. And he said like, yeah, I'm about to leave SEGA, but I can get you in here no problem if you just want to do QA. I'm like, do I just want to do QA? I'm like, that's exactly what I want to do. (laughs) So, I, <laughs> he set me up with an interview uh, to go down there, uh, to, and I was living in Arkansas at this, at this time. I, I did not mention that, but if you're listening to my voice and wondering <laughs> where in the world I'm actually from, it is not California. And so, I flew uh, from Arkansas to to the Bay Area, San Francisco, uh, interviewed at, at this place, Walnut Creek, or some crazy place, uh, and it was like for uh, any sort of temp job. So then, like, they had me record like my Titan speed and all yeah, this other you, stuff. Yeah, that. and I was like, I was like, I am not good at any of these sorts of things. Eventually, they then said like, you know, video games. Check out video games. Uh, here, look at this uh, VHS tape and pick out everything wrong with the game. And I just. I just totally just blew it out the water. Mm-hmm. I had like pages and pages of things wrong with it. And, and the people there, they didn't care. <laughs> you know, they're just like 10 people taking <laughs> tests. They <laughs> didn't really care one i or, or another, but I was very proud of myself on this. Uh, and they were happy enough to, they're like, yeah, uh, they, uh, Sega wants to offer you, uh, a tent position doing QA. Uh, and it's going to be on the Dreamcast team first party. I'm like, That's exactly everything in my life that I ever wanted. So uh, they gave me the job offer, and that was like in uh, August of 2000. And I was, uh, yeah, August 2000, I want to say, yeah. And then I immediately moved out here about three weeks later, bought a plane ticket as, uh, as cheap as I could, packed myself up with just like a little gear, and I think I had like a sonic statue with me. And I started working at Sega just in the QA department, uh, and it was really just meeting the right people at the right time and uh, having the same interest uh, as it's other kind of people on eBay. internet. Yeah, and, and internet stalking. Yeah. B- back then I felt like it was safer. Right, <laughs> it, it was a more innocent. Yeah, yeah, man, and and everybody was very cool about it. So that's how I got into it, and uh, I've never looked back. Uh, I've had some, you know, up and downs within the industry. That I think we all have, but uh, it's one of the best industries I've ever worked in. And all thanks to some very nice people at Sega who gave me a chance. And there were countless people there that that I still love.
0: Awesome. Uh, yeah, I think... Uh I was looking into getting into level designing because that interests me. I actually just bought Super Mario Maker, and I've just been having a ton of fun making Mario levels. And um, cool. but uh, I, I'm actually curious: Did you guys ha- go to act, like any sort of school to become a game designer, or did you just kind of pick everything up as you went?
1: there was no
2: school for game design like back when right? so we had full sale and I think that was about it ah
1: so you even have full sale yeah. like, we had expressions in the media that was like audio and maybe some visual stuff but there was I, I didn't know about any game design programs um, I was even going to school for graphic design because I felt like it was the legitimate way to be an artist. Um, Mm -hmm. And then when I learned that you could even do game design, I was like, how did you get started? And all the answers were, well, we started in QA. So I just said, cool, how do I get into QA? And then dropped out of college and went straight into the games. So yeah, I didn't really learn anything outside of the industry until I got into the interview yeah. Once you start talking to people and networking, it really its a lot. It's stupid time and stupid luck. That's yeah. really what it was.
2: Uh, yeah, I don't think... I, I would You know what? I, I I will say this. like I had a very similar uh, approach to it as well. Um, I was in school for computer science and I ended up dropping out just because I wanted to take the job with Sega and, and get out of there and I wasn't really having a good time uh, with computer science I got the idea like I can program no problem uh, but what they were teaching us was uh, something that I wasn't really excited about. I remember going up to my professor and going like, hey, when are we going to learn uh, graphics? Like, how to program for graphics? And he's like, oh, we're not going to do that. Mm-hmm. I was like, "I was like, e- ever? At any point uh, during this? He was like, no, 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 you're not going to learn that. You're just going to learn how to make uh, databases and things like that. I'm like, alright, well, uh, I think I need to figure out something else. Yeah. And so at that same time, there was also a, a, a rise of uh, of of good 3D engines right then and there. Uh, and that this was like 98-ish sort of thing. So you had uh, Half-Life coming out, you had Quake 3 Arena, and then you had uh, Unreal mm-hmm. all coming out around that same time. So for me as a wannabe level designer at that time, I... Ate these uh level design tools up oh, i love them uh like growing up uh i had Wolfenstein 3d and uh there was like some uh packages out there that for like tool sets for doing your own levels uh that i just would dive into and play with all day yeah, yeah, and, yeah and then when doom came levels, out yeah. yeah then you would do the same thing with doom and, and that rating engine uh but then i would say like when quake 3 arena came out then That blew me away just as far as uh, how easy
1: it was to design within that tool. Uh, And nowadays it's... No, that's a good point. I totally forgot that I used to make levels in Quake as well way before, like just while I was in college because I had fun with it. Yeah, Yeah, it was a lot of
2: fun. Uh, So that's where we kind of got, at least where I got my chops was just on my own, just sitting there uh, constantly fiddling about a lonely child with a computer. Uh, These days, I would totally recommend somebody not be a college dropout and actually go. uh, But don't you don't have to take there's design video game design courses out there. uh, And I don't know if I would fully recommend doing that as much as I would say, go find a degree in something. Uh, that you can apply to video game, something adjacent to the video game industry mm-hmm. that you can apply to it. So, like, if you want to be an animator, learn, you know, animation that you can learn it for anything. Uh, learn uh, programming, but if you're really into uh, wanting to do video game programming, I think there's so many good tutorials out there now yeah. that uh, you can really just learn yourself these days. Uh, if you want, you know, if you're into the narrative writing, go and take some writing courses. Uh, all these sorts of things out there. But when it comes to game design itself, I think it all comes down to experience and just absorbing as many games as possible and getting good feedback from people uh, on what you're doing right and what you're doing wrong.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that 100%. Um, for me, I always, I've always, i said this a couple times on the show, uh, I, I work professionally film. And I went to film school, and I totally recommend anybody who wants to just work in the film industry should just not go to film school. It's a complete waste of money. Uh, (laughs) But if you want to make and write and direct your own films, then film school might be a good place for you to go, because then you at least learn the tools and and, uh, the equipment that you actually use to make uh, a a good-looking film production. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I see where you guys are coming from too. You guys were kind of like stuck in between like the old age and the new age, and you didn't really have any. There's no infrastructure in place for you guys to learn anything, so you kind of just had to pick it up on your own.
2: Yeah, yeah, we would end up banging like uh, when we were at Crystal Dynamics uh, at the time. So to back it up just a little bit before that is that Joe and I actually met uh, while working at Sony at the time. Uh, so the Dreamcast sadly was dead and uh the playstation 2 was was supreme at that point uh and i was like i need a job and and all i can do is qa so i'm gonna go work at sony there down in uh, foster city not too much of a drag for me out there and uh ended up meeting joe there and we were just kind of on the far sides of the wall uh, doing whatever and we ended up talking a lot to each other because of our mutual interest in electronic music. And uh, Joe was making music, and I was kind of making music as well. And we were kind of just sharing stories back and forth on music production. That's really what sparked our friendship, uh, was music, not video games. So I always think it's very fun to kind of look at no matter where you are and who you're working with uh, to try to strike up conversations with your co-workers and find out you know if there's other passions that they have outside of that sort of thing because hmm. uh, because of that love of music we uh, were buddies and then when he said like oh I'm going to go over to Crystal Dynamics uh, and I'm going to get my job back there I was like Hey, buddy! Can I come and join you? Like, I need to get out of here, and I can't do uh, Sony tests anymore. We gotta do—I gotta do something else. I gotta get closer to developers, and so I kept on my track of getting closer and closer to a developer. Uh, and it just so happened that Joe was in good with him.
0: Awesome. Uh, so, as a game designer, uh, what exactly does your role entail? Like, how how does the whole process kind of pan out?
1: I'd say it's different for the two of us, I think, even though we started roughly the same place, like, uh, our roles are very different, like, I, I gravitated, so there was no such thing as a gameplay designer when I was starting, but we could tell that, like, um, locomotion, like, moving the character, the way the game felt and controls, nobody was really owning it and nobody could really get it right, so I just... Jumped onto that. It was engineer driven. driven. Like it was, yeah, you know, it was engineer driven, and it was like, and it was animator driven. So I put myself in the, in between a programmer and an animator, and started sort of acting as like the the players representative, essentially. And then um, designing tools, designing technology to like make the things that I felt we needed, um, and that would be. So it was like reverse engineering games, and feeling feeling it out. So. I'd say my role now is in it's. It was spearheading that role of gameplay designer, and now it's gameplay has since taken on systems, player, the controls, camera, combats, um, AI. So these are kind of all the the ways that I touch a game now, and it's really about like thinking through what do we want to do in the end? What's the sort of fantasy fantasy fulfillment, and then what sort of ingredients do we need to create? What's the technology? Who are the teams? It's like, got a kind of cool buzz there. Um, what are the technologies? And what are the teams that we need to build those? Um, so it's really like high level and then zooming all the way into the detail, like here's this spec for the tools and the tuning that like how fast is should the player be running? Um, things like that. It's, Really arcane and boring sometimes, but I just really love it. I think it keeps me up at night and I love solving those problems. Yeah, for me, I think it uh,
2: I've always had uh, able to read something and then just imagine the whole entire thing as I'm reading it and let it come to life. Uh, so for me, when it came down to designing video games and working on just uh, reading like somebody another designer's design doc, uh, I was able to really just imagine the whole entire thing in my head to see how it's going to play out and and if it passes that sort of design imagination test then I know that the design has merit. If like I read somebody's design and I can't imagine that it being fun in my head uh, with any sort of graphics or animation uh, superiority then if it's not fun sounding on paper then chances are it's probably not going to be fun when you're actually playing it so I think there's something really important about taking that design out of your mind, putting it on paper so that then somebody else can interpret it
1: and be excited about it with you. So would you say that when an idea is presented to you and it, you can't fill that out, that you start solving it in that space or start asking questions to solve it? Is that sort of how you see your role?
2: Yeah, I usually will you know, ask a lot of stupid questions uh, and just try to get down to what the simplicity of this design is, and, and I think you hit it on your head, uh, right on the head, when you said fantasy fulfillment. What is the fantasy fulfillment? What are we trying to get through to the player? What, what fun are we trying to have with the player on this? Uh, and for me, like I don't think I wrote my first design doc for a good while. Like I, when I started into the industry uh, as a designer, it was just uh, as a level designer, and we didn't put a lot of thought kind of into what role the level designer has besides just to white box out a play space and then fill it with things for the player to do, whether that's uh, traversal uh, problems that you need to get from one side of the room to the other, or if it's a puzzle that's in between you and me uh, from point A to point B, or if it's uh, some sort of enemy encounter or whatever it is, that was kind of what you filled those spaces with. And it was a, uh, you didn't really think about uh, the story that you can tell within that space. You kind of have the level as what's in between the bookends. And when you first start a level, you get kind of like the the setup for what's happening and it might be, you know, some NPC character drops in and goes like, hey, you need to go here and do this, this, this and this and I'll see you on the other side. And then once you get to the other side of the door, you know, the loading screen comes on and you're on the next level sort of thing. So for a long time, we designed games that way, and mobile designers kind of didn't really have a lot of input into the nuance of that story that's being told from the beginning of with your uh, with your objective, and then the final tally of the objective. So. After a while, video games became more and more advanced and we were able to put more and more things into the games. We were able to script the games a lot easier and a lot better, and I think designers, especially level designers uh, that I work with, uh, started to put small touches into the levels and kind of made them a little bit more interesting just as you're traversing from one side to the other that they start to try to tell uh, a side story or a smaller story or give some space uh, to interpret what may have happened in this area or what maybe will be happening in this area later on. Uh, and that's when level design actually became infinitely more interesting for me. You didn't really have to worry about, you know, like I'm going to fill this box with this uh, combat. You you start to think about, uh, oh, man, What's going to happen here is that these enemies are going to come down here. They're going to have like this little conversation. You can overhear a little bit of it if you want to. And you can, uh, you can sneak around to this area over here and then you can get the drop down on them. Or there might be like three different ways now to tackle the same problem. That because level design started to play a larger role in sort of the cinematic presentation of games, uh, it started to take a, a nicer, fuller role that I think uh, level designers kind of enjoy today than when they first started. So I, I'm happy with, with how level designers have leveled up over the years and become a more prominent figure in the game design process instead of just tools.
0: Right. Uh, and actually, I've, I just thought of something else. So um, I feel like games nowadays have, uh, it, it's just become a dying art in terms of tele, uh basically teaching the player how to play the game by just playing the game like basically um like a tutorial level kind of built into the story so uh, i watched a video on youtube by uh eco eco raptor uh where he it's called sequelitis i don't know if you guys have seen it but he's talking about um mega man 2 and how the gameplay Mm -hmm. teaches you how to play the game so there's no tutorial level uh, or anything, you know? just you just play the game, and then you learn and adapt by things that happen in the game. And I find that that nowadays that that's not really a thing you see very often. Uh, it's most of the time just like here's a tutorial, here's all what all the buttons do. You know what I mean? So uh, yeah, is it, in your guys' eyes, is that something that you look at when you're designing games?
2: Absolutely, and, and I think the, you can also trace it back to this time when. Uh, uh, we had manuals for games at one point. Like you would actually be able to open up uh, your game and you'd find a little manual in there. And sometimes the manual was, you know, 10 pages that tell you how to play some games and have some set up and basically that was your tutorial. Uh, and then we had this shift in the industry where we got rid of video game manuals. Uh, we stopped putting them in there because they were too expensive uh, for the publishers to put them in everything. So you can save yourself a little bit of money by having these digital tutorials. And I don't think because of the nature of a tutorial is that uh, we don't know really how the game is going to fully play until about sometimes six weeks before the game ship. <laughs> I mean, so I, we worked on some titles where it comes down to it. We're like, oh, this mechanic now actually works. Everything clicking into place and the game is fun. And by that point, uh, your in-game tutorial is locked. It is so locked in there and you really can't do anything against it. So we end up creating these very basic kind of uh, exposition tutorials that kind of tell you everything and uh, act as the digital manual for the, and sometimes interactive, sometimes not even very uh, well interactive. But the other thing is that there's very few designers who actually want to take that workload on. In making a good tutorial, and it all—it always comes down to you know rock paper scissors on who's going to
1: have to do the tutorial level. And, oh, it's like the junior...
2: The yeah, players, yeah, and yeah, it usually comes down to, you know, the senior designer like, I don't want to deal with a tutorial level, and then it goes down to the next person, like, nope, 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 and then yes,
1: you're absolutely right. Not saying that we condone giving the tutorials, which is like one of the most important things to a junior designer, but that's just sort of how it turns out right now, and like, just to jump in for a sec, hmm. is uh, what we've seen, I think, over the last decade or two decades, is as games move more towards narrative, um, stories. The game directors see themselves more as like Hollywood directors, so they're less concerned about the player and the player's experience of learning a mechanic and then mastering it and then moving on. Um, and that's more the role of like say the, the, the designers, but the creative directors and the lead writers and such. They tend to just want to just tell the story. So it's kind of this push and pull, and usually you run out of time. So the tutorial is one of the last things. Um, to get any sort of resources. So, we just end up just, hey, player, do this. Hey, player, do that. But I think, yeah, that sequelitis video is fantastic. It's, um, just really hits home how those original Mega Man's would just teach you a mechanic and you couldn't really move on until you learned it. And, um, it's, I think it speaks to how good games can be. And I think, yeah, you're right. The more narrative games that just go straight into here's a text box, don't, can't do anything until you press X, and
0: then uh-huh. there you go. Tutorial,
1: yeah, almost
0: insulting. Yeah, it's like it's just it's a slap of the face, totally. Yeah, so to, uh, on the other side of that coin, uh, I'm playing a game called Hell Let Loose, which is still in beta uh, on on the Steam store. It has a very very steep learning curve. Um, it kind the its form of a tutorial is basically in the main menu before you join a server. It's got um, like the manual so you go in it explains everything in text form but it does, but they only have placeholder images right now so there's nothing there's nothing in there that uh really um kind of connects the dots so you, until you play the game you play the game and you're like oh, i have no idea what i'm doing or what class i should choose or what each class mm-hmm. does or, or anything it's a world war ii simulator if you don't if anyone listening doesn't know what that is essentially it's it's literally the best world war ii simulator i've ever played um, it's wow. yeah you guys sh- uh, should check it out it's amazing it's uh, it's a 50 versus 50 uh pvp uh sh- mat- like massive shooter and it's completely realistic like to operate a tank you need three people you need someone to be driving the tank and one person to be operating the turret and one person to be spotting for the artillery you need two people you need one loader and one shooter and then you need you have a commander that's commanding all the squad leads and then all the squad leads are leading their squads and trying to achieve the objectives of the commanders like it's a really really awesome high op game and it's amazing but but it's a very very steep learning curve you got to play like six seven games to get it right and each game yeah, is super really. long so
2: yeah I'm, I'm surprised that you can actually find a hundred people that are that into uh, a war war simulation that actually want to do that I mean because I think we kind of move away from from simulations a lot of times uh, especially in the triple-a like, there's no real triple-A simulations out there. Uh, they're, they're far and few between. Uh, we tend to go more for the the arcadey when it comes to the mass appeal, uh, because there's more mashy of the buttons, less learning curve. Uh, don't really have to worry about the repercussions of missing something, because you're not sitting there you know, trying to reload your rocket, uh, your uh, rounds in your tank or anything like that. Uh, so, I'm actually, I'm, I'm delighted, I'm actually, yeah, yeah. yeah, that that a game like that can actually uh, thrive. So, uh, people keep on playing you know, those crazy, weird games out there and, and finding that bliss.
0: Yeah. So if you, anybody listening, if you're sick of Call of Duty of you shooting a guy like ten times and him not dying, like play Hell Let Loose. It's literally like one shot yeah, kill. Yeah. It's crazy. It's one shot kill, yeah, yeah. and you have to manually reload your gun and keep track of all your ammunition. Like it's like full on simulation so you're you're really feeling it it's great all
2: right I think that's like the future of of like kind of where we're going with uh with the idea of getting together with your friends, and you're no longer like larping or, or joining like any sorts of uh, uh recreational recreation crews or anything like that you can just jump online and uh, get yourself a virtual avatar and do everything yep. with a little bit more pizzazz there
0: yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay, so the next question I have for you guys is actually the most excited I am to ask... Uh, the most excited question I have for you. Uh, okay, so I uh, we've had a QA manager on the show before, and we asked him this question as well. So I work in the film industry. When I go watch a movie, I can't watch the movie. I'm like, oh, I like how that was lit, or how the hell did they get that location, or how did the... You know what I mean? Like, I'm just tearing apart the movie of how it was filmed. I'm not watching the movie uh-huh. itself. So um, when you guys play games as a consumer... Uh, do you guys do that with the design aspects of the game?
1: Yes, I, I wouldn't say that it really takes me out of the experience. It just kind of changes it. So it's been a few games where I, I do do some design rage. Like, like I almost <laughs> want to take to Twitter yeah. and start calling people out. But I, I think if you know, it's a good game, then it's like not a problem. But if it's no. a bad game, then it definitely takes me out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and sometimes I like the bad games as well. I mean, like I, I have a list of,
2: of games. Everyone should play that are no good as well, but I, I think after a while, because you do know how the sausage is made, um, you end up looking at the game uh, in a bit of a matrixy wireframe sort of view, uh, where all the triggers are going to be and uh, what's going to be the. I think boss battles are probably the least exciting for me now because I can easily can see, see it. what yeah. I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah, uh, so. I think anybody out there that, you know, wants to make a, a game that is, uh, the game for designers, you know, get weird with it, uh, throw away some of the rules and, uh, really kind of do things differently. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it doesn't diminish my enjoyment of a game as much unless it's like just a game breaking sort of flaw in it. Uh, otherwise if it's a pretty well-balanced game, even though I can see where all the triggers are and, and know exactly when to hit something, uh, I try not to let it affect me too bad. Uh, just because, I mean, yeah, if, if you look at something, especially with like, uh, with movies, for instance, like, you know, that everything counts. If they're going to say something or they're going to show you something uh, because of the editing process of movies, you know, that Chekhov's gun is going to be used, sort of thing. Uh, So it's no surprise whenever they introduce it. In video games, uh, you never really know what the player is going to do. So everybody's going to play it a little bit differently. Uh, And as long as you're not trying to min-max or or break the game, but you're just kind of trying to enjoy it from a a user's perspective and kind of uh, just chill with it. I don't have a huge amount of problems with playing most games these days.
1: Yeah, I'd say there's something kind of important to just good design work, and that's the ability to sort of turn off the designer developer mind and play it as a player. And the more the better designers can do that sort of on a switch. So it lets them sort of see the things through a player's lens because we have to constantly sort of evaluate our work through that lens. And if we're unable to do that, then we're probably not doing very good design work. So I think it's just a natural kind of like habit that we've developed as designers to be able to toggle that on and off. So I think when we play video games, it doesn't really kill the experience because we're able to turn it off. Exactly.
2: I, I, the only uh, difference of that opinion is cameras.
1: Mm-hmm. I would say that
2: if you have a bad camera in your game, whether it's a user-controlled camera mm-hmm. or static cameras or whatever it is, if it's a bad camera, that is almost unacceptable for me. I'm like, did you even play your game? Super like, easy. Yeah, <laughs> that is, so that's my own personal <laughs> pet peeve, uh, I yeah, guess, yeah. when it
1: comes to anything. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's a bad camera one. I'd say you got more pet peeves than that, but yeah, a bad camera is <laughs> a good one.
0: Definitely. Yeah, like playing- <laughs> That's the
1: worst one. That, that's what I rage at.
0: Playing Donkey Kong sixty four with that bad camera controls is just so infuriating. So I totally hear you there.
2: <laughs> a lot of uh, barrel smashing in that one. Yeah, a lot of barrel stuffing. <laughs> <laughs> barrel
1: stuffing.
0: Yeah. Uh, okay, guys. So, uh, what's what's your favorite game to play? In ter- like just just on a whim.
2: I tend to like really strange abstract games. Uh, and I think like taking it back to a while, uh, like one of the most recent ones, I would say that the games that I love are the ones that surprise me the most and the ones that break the most conventional design rules. Uh, Cause they really make me think about design and make me reevaluate what is a fun, what is fun. Uh, so I remember when uh, my roommate at the time uh, the old roommate that I took over the spot of uh, he went to Japan and this was uh, 2002 or 3 or whatever it was and he brought back this crazy weird game that nobody could even pronounce and he had a uh, Japanese PS2 we tossed it in there and we started playing this game uh, Katamar. Mm-hmm. and I was just like what are we playing? Yeah. This is crazy. Like, I have no idea what's going on here. This is insane. And I remember just like loving every bit of it, uh, because it was such a, an accessible, but yet infuriatingly unaccessible game. Uh, and it just amazed me how, how much fun you could have just with the bizarreness of it all. Um, so that was one of the games that I just kept on playing with. I would bring anybody over. I'd be like, let's play kind They're like, what's that? And I would be a, a personal advocate of it. Um, other than that, like, I remember when Animal Crossing came out, uh, I was just amazed by that game as well. Uh, it just hit so many great notes. It was doing so many cool things that had not been done before. And this is the, the GameCube Uh, and I was, I was just in love with it. I was playing it all the time, like just all times of day. Uh, I remember I was, uh, I was at, uh, I was, well, I was testing at Sony at that time and yeah I would just kind of like be at Sony testing and just kind of dreaming about what my my little animals and Animal Crossing were up to uh, and everybody else that wanted to play with it we'd be like oh come over to my town and then you'd have to trade memory cards and all sorts of other crazy things with them just to make things happen. Uh, so games like that that really kind of challenge the convention of what video games are like really stick fondly uh, towards me and I just I, I love them all the time. All the time. But uh, just when it comes to, like genres like the Metrovania uh, genre is always just fun for me. I've uh, just got through bloodstained not too long ago and had a blast with that., uh, so those kinds of games like really, really get me as well just because there's a, they're, I, maybe it's because they're level design heavy. maybe there's there's something about a good Metrovania game that if you can hit it where again, you know you turn the castle upside down and you can play through the whole entire thing uh upside down that 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 blew my mind when Symphony
1: and i came out can I, uh, follow up can you what do you feel about like rogue legacy or Lights? well the the introduction of like the rogue system well just because they're metroidvanias but they're procedurally level level design like it's like procedurally generated yeah. level design. I mean,
2: to me it feels it cheapens the experience mm-hmm. uh because again uh, A metrovania game is only as strong as the levels itself and the way that it gates levels and the way it makes you feel smart for unlocking uh the next area uh and as soon as you have procedural design uh level design especially within that uh then for me you just don't have that connection with the designer and understanding that you you beat the designer at their own game Mm -hmm. you just beat a an algorithm at its own game.
1: You know, what's special about beating the computer? Got it. Uh, for me, I would play, I play Slay the Spire like consistently almost every night. That's how I fall asleep now. And then, uh, I uninstalled all fighting games for the entire year of 2019. So it's 2020, I'm playing Street Fighter Five and Tekken again because it's, it's just in my system. I can't stop.
2: Are you rusty though? Like is that one of the is, is it, is it the bicycle, uh, Analogy, or
1: did you find that you had to learn how to uh, ride all over? I'm an old man, so I'm rusty anyway. Like, so the reaction times are just a little bit slower, and I don't expect to like hold my own in the tournament. But yeah, I feel like I I don't know, just the constant ladder of learning a new character, learning optimal combos. Still, there's a mental game. There's There's an anxiety
2: about learning anything new, especially in video games nowadays, where I I feel like I don't often pick up a lot of new games only because I feel like there is this anxiety of starting a new game, having to read through that tutorial text that we talked about that nobody likes to do. Uh, And I really like those games that you can just pick up and start playing without a lot of fanfare and things like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or, you know, like a a nice multiplayer game like back in the day, we used to always play Saturn Bomberman uh yeah we, we would throw in uh eight people yep. for a saturn Barman game and that was like the some of the ultimate fun you could ever have just because it was everybody couch co-op uh versus each other sort of thing um and you really didn't have to know too much about the game to really start having fun with it so like i, I think the same thing about fighting games except for like uh i was trying to play Mortal Kombat 11 and and they do really well for some of the old school characters, control exactly like you remember them for and uh, in the original. But then they give you all these new characters and I'm like, I don't know what's going on anymore. Like it's a very pretty game and lots of cool things are happening, and it's very cinematic, but at the same time, I don't know what I'm doing. I have to pause the game and read the instructions again. So yeah, fine games. Can't right. hold a candle with anybody these
0: days. All right guys, uh winding down on time here but uh i'm actually just curious uh more more of a question for alex about sega and so you were obviously there uh, during the downfall of sega so what was that <laughs> what was the environment like at sega when you're like oh it's it's going tits up
1: i think
2: uh sega had a few downfalls uh over the course uh so in, in this epoch that we were in was the dreamcast one and uh, you know, and the funny thing about it, going through the hallways of Sega at the time, there was like a bunch of boxes from when Sega failed with the Saturn. So there was just a bunch of boxes labeled with Saturn this and Saturn that that were still just in the hallways taking up space. And then when the Dreamcast, uh, I remember the maybe the first game that was kind of like a real surprise was uh, we were testing uh, Res for the Dreamcast. And I really thought it was a cool, crazy game. Uh, Some of the other uh, QA folks, they didn't care about it at all. They're like, this is stupid. But I'm like, oh, this is really awesome. Like, check out this music and it's all interactive and fun. And I remember we almost had the game done and wrapped up and everything. And they're like, well, this game has been uh, sold as an exclusive for PlayStation 2 and we are stopping it right here and now. And we're all like, oh, okay, then uh, what does that mean about the Dreamcast? And they're like, yeah, the Dreamcast games, uh, we used to have a big whiteboard that would have all the list of games and when they're coming in for test and who's going to be the lead and who's going to be the assistant and who's going to be assigned and stuff like that. And it used to you know, be filled with like two dozen games. And then over the course of time, they it started to thin out and then by the end of it there was maybe like two games on there. Uh, and then I remember uh, Shinmu 2, was kind of like the last game that we put in a lot of work into, and they just canceled it, and like we were all just very upset by it. Uh, and they're like, well, uh, the good news is, is that no one's gone. We're just going to work on Xbox and PS2 and GameCube and GBA games at this point. It wasn't so bad in the transition uh, until then there was a bit of a hiccup in, in that development where... Sega didn't really need any more QA at that point. Uh, the QA department was huge because a lot of first party titles that were already hot from the, from the Japanese carry over to uh, the US. So we always had a lot of work as soon as the developers had to kind of recalibrate and uh, port their games over to other systems there was a huge delay in that you know that took up probably 12 months of development for everybody uh on that side and eventually uh once like sonic team started to kind of dry up we knew that nobody was really going to be safe at that point point. and the, i remember we were called in uh peter moore at the time uh, was the head of uh, Sony? Obviously, uh, Sega. And he called everybody in. Uh, him and Charlie were up there, and it was like, "Yeah, we got bad news. Uh, we're winding down. The sadly, the Dreamcast is is dead, and we're going to have some layoffs." And everybody was very sad about that sort of thing. But I mean, even then, there was like the untold story of like uh, there was some weird lawsuits happening at Sega at the time for discrimination. Uh, and that didn't help matters at all, but I wasn't part of any of that, so I really don't have any knowledge besides that people were negatively affected by that as well.
0: Yeah, it's too bad. Um, so, on a more slightly positive note, uh, what do you guys think of the new Sonic movie?
2: <laughs> I, well, I think we're all delighted that that, that the uh, that the filmmakers, like I, half of me thinks that it was all just a hoax and that they actually knew what they were doing and had like this whole thing, like there's really good Sonic all there. And they had like these silly, like uh, a cheeser trailer of just like really bad Sonic just to see what people would say. Kind of like an April Fool's, like an elaborate April fools is kind of like what I looked at it as. But then when people are like, no, 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 this is the real movie. I'm like, really wow but then they came through and they said like hey uh we listened to everybody apparently no one's going to come see this movie uh so we're going to redo it and i think that's great betty a they listened to their audience which could be good could be bad it could you know i mean who knows what it's going to do for them financially but i think it's interesting that they listened and were able to react so quickly to that uh, but also i feel like sonic for me like I was a big Sonic fanboy back in the day, and I, you know, on my Genesis, I owned them all. Uh, even on uh, the Dreamcast, I owned them all. And when I got to meet Yuji that was like a greatest moment of my life, sort of thing. But I understand that Sonic is a franchise that is geared now towards a younger audience. And whenever they come up with a new game uh, or a new uh, a new show or a new movie, it's always going to be geared towards a younger audience. It's going to be geared towards my nephews' ages of like six, seven, and eight, and that sort of thing. And that's cool. I mean, I think we have to, as we grow up, we have to understand that the games are not necessarily going to grow up with us. We got our chance with like uh, the the Sonic Night and uh, Sonic. Shadow and stuff like that, and we got a taste of what Sonic would be if it was made to, for an older audience. And I don't think anybody was happy. So I think just you know let the games be for the kids, and if they're well designed games, they're going to be fun. If it's a well written movie, everybody's going to get some enjoyment
1: out of it. Yeah, I had a different opinion of the Sonic movie, and it was like I it was like I could see the math behind the decision. They were like. Well, we can do motion capture for Sonic, but it's going to be basically a human dude in a suit, in a fuzz suit that looks like Sonic. And they didn't really update the the model or the animations because they were just like that. That'll be too costly to make it look like the real animated yeah. Sonic. So I think they went went that route and they just went with dude in a suit and they tried to sort of like fuzz him up and make him blue and be like, cool, there he is. Yeah, they tried to anti-circus it. Yeah, right, exactly. And then uh, when all the backlash happened, they're like, ah, oh, we can't release this. What is it going to take? And then some VFX house said, yeah, we'll do this for chump change. And then that VFX house crunched their artists and effects people to completely redo... All those animations. I'm pretty sure. Don't quote me on this, but I think they've even gone through layoffs since that happened. Well, I'm sure. I'm sure, sure, sure they still have so Yeah. Yeah. So it's like to me, it's just like bad decisions upon bad decisions, and then like you sort of watch the like the actual people that are doing the work like really suffer from it. So I, I'm I have that kind of bad taste in my mouth. But at the very least, it's like hopefully everybody that made was on the decision making process of that mm-hmm. thing. Saw how expensive it was to get to the end result, and they would just do it right the first time, versus yeah. wait and see.
0: Well, uh, the Sonic movie was shot up here in Vancouver, and I actually have a bunch of friends that worked on the show, and uh, they, mm-hmm. they were, yeah, they were they were telling us <laughs> basically if they listened to the crew, like just the below the line types, they would have been they should have just yeah. you know because they walked into the the art direction room and you know they got uh, illustrations and and comps and stuff of what stuff's gonna look like and then there's Sonic and he looks like a humanoid drowned rat and there, yeah everyone's like Sonic looks super dumb and they yeah I'm sure that's exactly what you just said is what happens because what they do in film all the time is uh, they always take the least expensive route but it ends up costing them more money in the end and even, yeah. even the below the line people are like no if you do it that like you should do it the expensive way because then Essentially, you're saving more money in the end, and then they never listen to you. So, right. yeah, that's how it goes. So,
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. are you excited for it? Are you are you going to be there first in line, uh, opening night for that? Or are you I
0: gonna I'll have skip? to check my calendar, but uh, I feel like yeah. I'm not going to make the, uh, the the opening night. But I will go see the movie just because they actually sent it back to post and and fix Sonic's design. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah,
2: I mean, we're living in a weird world where you can even do that. Like, the Sonic one I thought was interesting that they spent the time before it got released. But then, like, with the Cats movie, and then, like, patching that movie while it was out, I thought that, was, that was, to me, was unheard of and insane and interestingly cool that you can have, like, a... Uh, like, like, in video games, you have, you know, the Day Zero patching and things like that, that you put the game in and then say, like, oh, no, we need to update this, basically download the entire game over again. But... How weird to live in a time now where you go and watch a movie and then somebody a week later watches it and has a completely different experience because Mm -hmm. they watch the patched version of the disaster you watched the previous week. (laughs)
0: Well, the whole movie so, is a disaster, so I don't think any patch is going to fix it. But yeah,
1: <laughs> I want to embrace that though and make an interactive film thing where it's like if you watch it on a certain day, you get a different experience. or something like that. Oh yeah, it, like I, I had
2: always wanted to do like you know the uh, take
1: the two endings,
2: like uh, like yeah. even in a video game, yeah yeah, you, yeah like include like even in a video game like where you, when you play through it, uh, there's a chance you know you get the good ending, and the bad ending. But what about just the chance you get the random ending like never know what you're going to get when you play it yeah it's going to always end up with a different ending yeah weird
0: yeah. alright guys we've reached the end of our show but uh, thanks a lot for joining us today uh, and uh, had a good ass time talking to you guys yeah we had a
2: great time yeah thank you Roddy this
1: okay. was great
0: awesome mm-hmm. uh, okay uh, once again we have a contest go join that on a facebook page free to join don't have to buy anything but you should buy a shirt anyway uh (laughs) thanks for listening to the podcast leave a review on whatever you're listening to the show on and then jump on to social media let us know what you thought of the show and uh alex and joe if you guys have any projects uh, that you'd like to share you can share them on our discord in announcements
1: that's Right on. All right. Later.
0: Okay, guys. Thanks a lot. Next week is our hundredth episode ever. So uh, join us that uh, join us on that. We're gonna have full pull crew of we'll me, Will, Cole, and maybe some of the other VGN dudes if they are available. And uh, we'll reveal which what our team name is gonna be. So hopefully it's gonna be cool. And uh, we'll see you guys next week. See you later.